Well, this morning we want to take a look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And I've titled this uh, presentation, Jesus Intercepts Saul. In the first seven chapters of Acts, the development of the first century ecclesia was limited to ethnic Jews. In chapter 8, Samaritans and Gentiles were added. And in chapter 10, this is confirmed. The inclusion of the Gentiles is confirmed as part of the New Testament ecclesia. Now in chapter 9, Luke recorded the conversion of the apostle to the Gentiles, Saul of Tarsus, who was one of the most ardent persecutors persecutors of the New Testament Ecclesia. His conversion was dramatic, shocking, and unexpected. Saul was not seeking Jesus. Rather, he was seeking to persecute anyone who embraced Jesus as the Christ. But Jesus had other plans, and one of the most, if not the most, passionate adversaries of the New Testament Ecclesia and what Christ was building through the Ecclesia was unilaterally intercepted by Jesus and given a revelation that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. Saul's conversion is quite interesting and raises a number of questions. Why didn't Jesus intercept everyone in Saul's entourage? Was Saul regenerated when intercepted by Jesus? And if not, when was he regenerated? If he was regenerated, why didn't Jesus fill Saul with the Holy Spirit right then and there? And what part, if any, of Saul's encounter with Jesus is normative for the New Testament ecclesia today? This latter question will be our main discussion topic in the theological discussion today. But a little background on Paul first, or Saul. He was biblically literate and therefore knowledgeable on the scripture, particularly scriptural prophecy regarding the teaching on the Christ. He knew about the Christ but not, did not know the Christ. Acts 9 recorded Saul personally meeting Jesus, who is the Christ. Consequently, once Saul received the revelation that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah, he became the Apostle Paul, one of the most powerful apologists in Christian history. Or you might argue he was the most powerful apologist in Christian history. His apologetic prowess was displayed in Damascus within a few days after his conversion. We'll see that when we get to Acts chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. Now let's consider the conversion of the Apostle Paul, one of the arch enemies of Christ, who was converted and became perhaps the greatest servant of Christ in the history of the Ecclesia. Though a contemporary of Jesus, Paul was not persuaded to abandon Judaism to embrace Jesus as Lord in Christ. Therefore, he opposed Jesus and his Ecclesia. Paul is an example of how the spirit of Antichrist can use well-meaning, spiritually inclined people to oppose the work of Christ. So let's read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light suddenly shone from heaven. It flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. 
he replied. But get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. In chapter 8, Saul, <clears throat> Saul's attack the ecclesia in Jerusalem. Acts 8 verses 1 through 3 says, Saul agreed <clears throat> with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women, and put them in prison. Saul's zeal against the, the ecclesia expanded to Damascus a city about 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem that was not part of the inheritance of Israel. This was outside the boundaries of the promised land. This reflects Saul's commitment to his Old Testament Judaism and his passion to protect it from what he perceived to be the false doctrine of Christianity, which at that time was called the way. Chapter 9 begins with Saul seeking authority from the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem to travel to Damascus to arrest anyone found in the synagogues who belonged to the way. <clears throat> the way is a, it's the English translation of the word Greek word odos, which refers to literally a road, and metaphorically it can refer to a way of thinking or a lifestyle. And so Paul was going to go find these people, return them to Jerusalem, presumably for trial. They will be arrested, and then they would be held accountable. So this is interesting to see how the religious leaders had political authority to arrest, incarcerate people in the first century. It appears that the ecclesia was expanding after the martyrdom of Stephen. Clearly, this was an unintended consequence. Perhaps this is a picture. As persecution against Christianity grows, Christianity grows. And, though, and those who were part of the ecclesia were not casual about their faith. They were committed followers of Christ. We today, consequently, are not that committed. And perhaps it's the persecution that we may have to go through that will make us more committed. Saul did not function as an orphan separated from his father. That's how most of us function. In our fallen state, we tend to function as orphans. He functioned as a man under authority. He fully understood God's way was to be under authority. Saul was also very biblically literate. He trained under the leading the one of the leading theologians of the day, Gamaliel, who was still a guiding light to those during the formation of the first ecclesia. But Saul's biblical literacy was not salvific without the revelation that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The word odos literally refers to a road and metaphorically intimates a way of thinking and living that is a lifestyle. Saul was traveling on a physical odos, commissioned to the work of destroying those who embraced the metaphorical odos, known, later known as Christianity. To stop Saul from persecuting the ecclesia, that is the odos, Jesus intercepted him. 
verses 3 through 6 record the encounter that Saul had with Jesus. It was around noon, according to Acts 22.6, and when Paul gives us another account of this particular incident, and he described it as an intense light from heaven. So at around noon is when the sunlight is the brightest in the day, and yet there is a light even more intense than that that flashes around Saul. It was the middle of the day when this brightness of the sun would be the greatest. There'll be this additional light was so bright that Saul was blinded, causing him to fall to the ground. A voice called out to Saul, Saul, who, why are you persecuting me? To persecute Jesus' ecclesia is tantamount to persecuting Jesus. Saul's response was simple. Who are you, Lord? Saul immediately recognized that he was intercepted by the Lord, but who was the Lord? Jesus identified himself. The heart of Christianity is that Jesus is the Christ of the Old Testament prophecy. Saul was highly trained in the Old Testament scripture, knew these prophecies well, but he didn't know or believe that Jesus was the Christ. This was the seminal point of Peter's very first message on that day of Pentecost when he's explaining the events that surrounded that very first day of the birth of the Ecclesia. Peter said this, let all the house of Israel know with certainty, no doubt, with certainty, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, that is you Jews, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead and God has made him both Lord and Christ. So that led to the formation of the ecclesia on the very first day in Acts chapter 2. Saul knew that the Christians asserted Jesus was the Christ, but didn't believe it. Now he personally, directly, supernaturally encountered Jesus. There could be no other conclusion but that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. According to Acts 22.10, Saul asked, what should I do, Lord? The Acts 9 account leaves this detail out, doesn't give us that information. But clearly, there was an interchange there between Paul and Jesus. Jesus directed Saul to go into Damascus, and there he would be informed about what he must do. In other words, Saul would receive revelation about the call of God that would govern the rest of his life. Unlike the direct encounter with Jesus on the road, Jesus employed an agent to reveal God's calling or Saul's calling to suffer. Saul, the persecutor, would become the persecuted. As a human agent was used to facilitate the restoration of physical sight and, and, and his baptism, just as a human agent was used to, to then reveal his calling. So it's so interesting to see how Jesus intercepted Saul, how no human agent was involved in the initial interception, but in the healing of his blindness and in the direction of his call, there is a human agent employed. And that's clearly the sovereign pleasure of God. Verse seven recorded that Saul's companions heard the sound, but, but Saul's testimony later was that they, they saw the light and did not hear the sound. So there's some confusion here, even in the testimony of Scripture, exactly what happened. But they did not have the revelation. They were not intercepted in the same way 
that Saul was. They didn't lose their sight. He lost his sight. They led him into Damascus. They didn't, they were not used to restore it with sight. It was Ananias that God would send and that Ananias would, his, was God's agent to facilitate the healing and to call of God, to facilitate calling uh, Paul out to his call to suffer. Though Saul's eyes were open, he was blinded by the bright light from heaven. When the light flashed around him, he fell to the ground. After his interaction with Jesus, he was led into Damascus by his companions. There he waited for three days in the home of Judas, who lived on Straight Street. What irony. Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, you know, who was very crooked. And now we have a Judas who lives on Straight Street, like a Judas who's been redeemed. Saul has been redeemed. Saul repented of his Judaistic zeal, a zeal without knowledge, a zeal that was not informed properly, and he turned to the straight way, the straight odos, based on the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So let's just take a look at some theology for a moment. What part of Saul's encounter with Jesus is to be considered normative for the New Testament ecclesia? Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, along with Peter and John, were the key apostles who gave the New Testament ecclesia the essential doctrine of Christianity. So one might expect his conversion to Christianity could be at, at unique, at least in part. Consider some of the traits of his conversion and what was singular to his experience and what is to be normative for the New Testament ecclesia today. I've got four points. So first is, is it necessary to encounter Jesus to believe in Jesus? Paul encountered Jesus at a time when he was persecuting Jesus. He opposed Jesus. He served the spirit of Antichrist. Paul said of himself, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. Paul stated in Romans 3 that the default state of man is rebellion against God. That is total depravity, total inability to do anything to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. Therefore, no one seeks God without divine empowerment. To believe in Christ, one must encounter Christ. This was Paul's experience, and he concluded that it was normative, and that's what he stated to us in Romans chapter three. Next, did Paul seek Christ or did Paul choose Christ? Many today think that fallen mankind seeks Christ. We even have a saying called seeker sensitive churches, referring to churches that are looking for people that are seeking Christ. Do you really seek Christ? Does anyone really seek Christ? Saul wasn't seeking Christ. This wasn't true of Saul. He was not a seeker. He was not seeking Jesus when he encountered him. Again, Saul stated in Romans 3, of course, this was the apostle Paul speaking, that no one seeks God, no, not one. He's quoting Old Testament scripture when he is drawing that conclusion. Paul's experience illustrated the truth. Paul was persecuting the followers of Jesus when Jesus intercepted him. Paul responded to the encounter with Jesus in faith saying, who are you, Lord? 
This means that grace precedes faith, as stated by J.I. Packer in his comments on Galatians 4.9. Packer says this, Knowing God was the consequence of God's taking knowledge of them. They know him by faith because he first singled them out by grace. Given mankind's default state of total depravity, therefore the impetus to live based on the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ must be of divine origin. It cannot come from man. Rather than man choosing God, it is God who chooses man. The norm is God's is God always chooses us first, then those who are chosen respond in faith. This is normative. Now the third question, did Saul believe in Jesus through the gospel message preached by a human agent? We certainly believe that's the way it's done today. We put a humongous amount of emphasis on preaching the proclamation of the gospel. However, Saul was not proclaimed the gospel message. He had a direct encounter with Jesus. There was no human agent involved, and the only gospel message that you might identify was the fact that Jesus identified himself as the Lord. That was it. Perhaps this was because Saul was so highly biblically literate. He knew the Old Testament scriptures so well, he simply needed revelation about who was Lord in Christ. That's all he needed, and he put everything else together. Most people today are not like Paul. The people today, and the people historically of Christianity, but particularly today, are biblically illiterate. We are ignorant of what Scripture says. Therefore, we have to have someone to spell it out, to explain things in great detail. Indeed, this is what Paul explains in Romans 10. So Paul's direct encounter with Jesus is probably not normative, particularly for biblically illiterate people. Rather, what is normative is that a human agent, a person, sharing a gospel message through both lifestyle and words is what's required of those who are biblically illiterate. Finally, the last question was, was the encounter with Jesus irresistible? Could Saul have turned down the invitation to know Jesus? Now, you might say, well, that would have been stupid. Yes, it would have been stupid, but could he? The encounter with Jesus crippled Saul's ability to carry out his will. He was physically blinded and metaphorically blinded. Saul began the encounter spiritually blind to the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He was blinded by the light physically. His sight was restored a few days later through the human agent Ananias, symbolizing that Saul had received the revelation that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Saul's encounter with Jesus transformed him physically and spiritually. He no longer walked as a spiritually blind Jew who rejected Jesus as both Lord and Christ. According to Jesus, all that the Father has given to him will come to know him, and he will lose none of them, John 6, 37-39. Saul did not have a choice. He was chosen by God to receive God's grace. The irresistible grace of God is therefore normative. Now, word of application. I want to share a story of a, of a man, a contemporary of ours, who was intercepted by Jesus. 
One evening in the fall of 1944, a cadet at the U.S. Naval Academy was reading the Bible. By his own admission, he was being, quote, condescendingly dutiful, unquote. This was the attitude that he had seen from professing Christians in the small town in Oklahoma where he grew up. He regarded himself as no different. But this evening would be different. Something happened when he read Mark 1.17, which reads, Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. This was such a moving, life-changing experience that he... <clears throat> He had difficulty sharing it with his parents, but he finally did. In a Father's Day letter to his dad four years later, he described his encounter that night in the dorm room in 1943 when Christ entered and intercepted his life. Christ that night spoke to him in words that he didn't understand. He couldn't believe it. He said, I was reading through the Bible. I was suddenly stopped. Sh shaken almost, it seemed as if my whole being was flooded with conviction and realization that God was trying to speak to me. At first, I couldn't believe it. And you need to understand, this man had been valedictorian of his high school class, would graduate within the top 10% of the Naval Academy class he was in, very brilliant man. So he was very much a man of reason, a man of his mind. He said, I first, I couldn't believe it, yet there is no possibility for doubting it, yet it just seemed unreasonable to my mind. Why? And it was so unexpected. But from that moment on, I knew and I was determined gladly to follow no matter what the cost would be. What could God want with me? Someone so unworthy, even indifferent. It was the most unexpected turn of my life, but what a noble turn, a turn to him to be a fisher of men. Now, what that meant was not clear to him at that time, but over the course of his life, he came to understand the purpose of God for his life. The person I'm talking about is my father-in-law, who was my first spiritual father, whom I called dad the whole time that I was married to his daughter. Even the, the day he, he performed the ceremony, he gave me permission to call him dad, and that was now over 52 years ago. His experience was similar to the Apostle Paul's. They were both intercepted by Jesus. Both were raised in biblically religious traditions. Both were dutiful. Both were seeking to live according to their own will. But to be Christians to the best of their ability or to be followers of God, I should say, to the best of their abilities, they knew that Jesus, they knew about him, but they didn't know him. Neither was really seeking Jesus, but they were both sovereignly intercepted by Jesus, not of their choosing and because of anything they had done, but because of the grace of God. Both were initially blind. They saw little of God's purpose for their lives, but God sent his agents to both of them to help them along the way. Ananias was sent to Saul within three days of his encounter with Christ. To dad, the Lord sent John Streeter. These human agents helped Paul and dad understand what it meant to be a disciple and how the Lord was going to use them for his purpose. Both lived well before the Lord 
and modeled how to walk with the Holy Spirit, and consequently they bore much fruit for the glory of God. When Jesus intercepts our lives, this is the result. Faithfully committed servants who reflect Jesus in thought, word, and action. This is what it means to be a disciple. Such people live in the reality of Paul's words to his spiritual son, Timothy, when he said, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Paul and dad fought the good fight, fully aware that all the glory goes to God alone because no one can live this way without divine empowerment and no one chooses divine empowerment. Divine empowerment is given to those chosen by God. May God grant us that grace in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.